This message by Bill Kittrell was recorded during a Sunday celebration service for Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Bill serves as a senior pastor on staff at Cornerstone Church. 1 Peter chapter 4, what a joy to be in 1 Peter. It is such a gift to us. And today we're just going to be looking at three verses. 1 Peter chapter 4. Verse 7, 8, and 9. I'm not going to do any context because we just don't have time. So I trust you've been able to follow along and see where Peter has us at this point. But this is God's Word. I think it's God's Word for us this morning. I'm so grateful that we can hear Him speak to us as individuals and as a church through this letter to these churches from the Apostle Peter. So read with me, beginning in verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. This is God's holy word for us this morning. Overall, I think the Lord just wants us to be good stewards of the manifold grace of God that we've received. He wants us to be good stewards of the grace we've received and will continue to receive. Just a brief word about the culture we live in today. There are, there are people these days who claim they know an animal's inner thoughts. They're called animal communicators. Or sometimes pet psychics. Dead serious. And this is not, what's the website that fools everybody? Or only me? Babylon Bee. This is not from the Babylon Bee. (laughs) Pet psychics, animal communicators, they claim that animals talk to them and people pay them so that they can find out what their pet is thinking, their dog. They don't talk about cats. Cats don't think. (laughs) Just kidding. Tara O'Hara has a three-week waiting list for appointments. She's an animal communicator. She has 10,000 clients, 10,000 animals. Last month, she gave a woman some hard news. She said that the family dog preferred to live with her soon-to-be ex-husband. She has sessions with guinea pigs, but admits they have less to say. 
She started hearing animals as a child, not with her ears, it's in her heart. It took, it took a few years to make a career out of it, but she has done it. Those of you thinking through job changes. Animal communicators can even hold sessions over the phone while they look at a picture of your pet. So Anna Twiney has done an in-person work, but she also does these kind of sessions. She's done in-person work with sloths in Costa Rica. She says they talk faster than they move. Brenda, Brenda Cunliffe told a brother and sister that their dog gets bored when everyone stares at their phones. That the dog is thinking, really, you're going to look at that again? Come on, let's go back outside. I, I know my dog's thinking that. I have a 125-pound Labrador that attacks me if I'm on my phone. Actually, I know a lot about what my dog thinks. You know, he wants a hamburger. He doesn't like it when I put him on a leash. He wants to go for a ride in the truck. I can just tell you it's not a psychic gift. <laughs> Miss, Miss Cunliffe charges $65 for a 30-minute session. She, she advertises herself also as an angel therapy practitioner, certified to work with angels. So she can communicate with angels. She learned this from an apparently well-known lady, Doreen Virtue. But Doreen became a born-again Christian in 2017 and renounced the practice of calling on angels. She said she had been deceived by New Age teachings and by demons who were posing as angels. And she also turned against pet psychics for theological reasons, she said. I say all this just to say, I read this article and I, I was like, oh boy, okay, we are not, Toto, we're not in Kansas anymore. Get, get the pun, Toto, okay. If, if, if one Peter seems especially relevant to you, it should. Our culture is similar to the culture where the churches that Peter was writing, where the churches were. They were pagan cultures. Paul said to the Corinthians, you know that when you were pagans, you were led astray by idols. And that's, that's the kind of cultures that Peter is riding into. There are churches there now. They've become born again, these people, but they, they were pagans. They were led astray to idolatry, just crazy idolatry. And what people believe now and how they think and live is more pagan. It's not any kind of traditional or established religious belief. It's, it's pagan. It's, not, it's certainly not biblical or Christian, but our culture is pagan. I, a few years ago, I was playing golf with a theologian and I hit a ball out of bounds and I said, oh man, how about a little luck? And this theologian, well-known theologian, did me a lecture on how luck was a pagan concept. And so I got corrected. And a few weeks later, I went through Starbucks and the, the barista says something about luck to me. And I said, oh, luck is a pagan concept. <laughs> and he's like, yeah, yeah. I mean... 
oh, okay. <laughs> it's a great time to be a Christian. We have a great reason to live. It's a great time to be the church. There, there's such a need for the gospel. People have no idea what the Bible teaches in our culture. We have job security. The world around us has changed. It's, it's changing. And, and living through moments like this can be frightening. But we shouldn't be afraid. That is not how we should respond. God is for us. We heard these these encouragements, these prophetic words this morning, just reminding us God is with us. If you look back in 1 Peter 1, he says, we are by God's power being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed on that last day when the Lord returns. God is sovereign. He's all-powerful. He rules over all. We shouldn't be afraid. And he's given us this text today. It's his amazing word, just what we need this morning. It's a special word for this moment in history. And he's saying, you have a great reason to live. There's a need for the gospel. Steward the grace that you've received for his glory. So first, we're going to consider Jesus' return because Peter begins with that. And then we'll... Think through how that affects how we should live today. Verse 7, the end of all things is at hand. The end of all things is at hand. That's truth for us today. Our text begins with the truth that matters more than any other truth. Jesus Christ will return. He will come again And this age we're living in will come to an end and there will be a new and glorious age. He will judge, we read last week in verse 5, he'll return to judge the living and the dead. That's kind of the context. And Peter's saying the end is at hand. He's going to return. His first appearing revealed his grace. When he came on that first Christmas morning, it revealed his grace. The next appearing will reveal the fullness of his glory. And and Peter's drawing us, our attention to this moment for good reason. He had told us in chapter 1, set your hope fully on the grace of God that's going to be revealed to you when he comes again. It's a source of strength when you're in a context where there's persecution, you suffer for doing good, for righteousness' sake. It's good to set your hope on this, this goal of all history, Christ's return. That's, all of history is moving towards His return. What does Peter mean when he says the end of all things is at hand? He said this over 2,000 years ago. Was he claiming to know that Jesus would be coming back in a few months? Was that what he meant? Was he wrong? In verse 7. Even during Peter's day. It was raising questions. And he says in 2 Peter. That people will say. Where's the promise of his coming? Sowing suspicion. 
and doubt. Some today think Peter was mistaken, misguided when he said this. But I don't believe that God has allowed Peter to make a mistake and teach mistakes to the church then or now. This is God's word. I don't think, I think it's clear that he did not mean that Jesus was coming back in a few months. Peter was with Jesus when the disciples asked him in Acts chapter 1, Lord, is it at this time that you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? And, and Peter was there and heard Jesus say, it is not for you to know the times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. When Peter wrote 1 Peter, he knew it wasn't his business to know exactly when Jesus would come and establish his kingdom. His job was to spread the gospel to the nations while he waited on Christ's return. He had a great reason to live. He says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Notice that he connects the, the nearness of the end with his call to pray. Why did he do that? Because that's what Jesus taught. So in Luke chapter 21, Jesus said, stay awake at all times praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. He's talking about the end times. He's teaching. Peter's there. And he's saying, pray. And that's what Peter now is teaching the churches. Jesus' point wasn't that they should pray to escape the troubles because if they escaped the troubles, they wouldn't need the strength. He's, he knows they're going to have trouble in these end times. So pray for strength. Peter says the end is at hand. Exercise self-control for the purpose of prayer. For the sake of your prayer so you'll have strength. It's what the Lord taught us. We should pray for strength so that we won't be harmed spiritually by the stress of these end times. Jesus teaches in Luke 21, in that context, that the coming in is going to be a trap for those if you're worldly, if you're overly indulgent, if you're weighed down by the worries of this life. It's going to be a trap. Pray. Pray that you'll have strength to escape from the trap of worldliness. Peter's just teaching what Jesus had taught him. He's an apostle. He's a disciple. This is God's word to us in these end times. It's a gift. Jesus had told him that the Jerusalem temple was going to be destroyed. And it was. A few years after Peter wrote 1 Peter. Hadn't been destroyed at that point though. Jesus taught him there were other signs that, that was, were going to come. He said in, in, in Luke 21 again, When you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. So he, he leaves it open-ended. The time frame for when the end will come remains unidentified. He gives no exact time frame. But he had taught that Jerusalem would be destroyed, and it hadn't been destroyed. There was going to be this times of the Gentiles even after that. 
Peter died before Jerusalem was destroyed. So it doesn't make sense that he was thinking Jesus would come back at any moment. And Jesus had said that before he came back, world evangelization would take place. Matthew 24. This gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a, a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So when Peter says the end of all things is at hand, he means he sees some of the signs. He sees persecution increasing. He sees the gospel advancing powerfully. He is amazed of what the Apostle Paul is accomplishing. He's establishing churches. Other missionaries are coming up. So he sees the end, these signs. This is what the Lord taught us. It's near. He doesn't know when. He doesn't know for certain. But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, we need to be good stewards of the grace of God. The truth that Jesus is the sovereign Lord who is returning to judge the living and the dead changes our lives. You may have heard of a woman named Rosaria Butterfield. I, I really like this lady. <laughs> she was a leftist, lesbian, university professor who despised Christians. She was a professor of English and women's studies at Syracuse University. She taught Christians, she thought Christians and Jesus were stupid, pointless, and menacing. She, she started researching Christians, the religious people known as Christians, their politics that were so against what she says, queers like me. She, she wanted to do this, so she had to do some research. She wanted to write a book, and so she knew she had to read the Bible because she believed it's what had gotten people so off track. So she read the Bible. She wrote an article as a result of her research, and she, she attacked Jesus, Republican politics, and patriarchy in the article. And she got fan mail. She got hate mail. But she got one letter that didn't fit. It was from, a, from the pastor of the Syracuse Reformed Presbyterian Church, a guy named Ken Smith. And that letter led to two years of what she called bringing the church to me, a heathen. And this man wasn't like the Christians she had seen. She'd be in gay pride parades and there'd be... Christians there with signs with Bible verses on them and she could tell by the look on their face they were happy that I and everyone I loved were going to hell. But this pastor invited her to dinner. And she initially went to dinner with him because she thought it would be good for her research. But Ken and his wife Floyd became her friends. They ate a lot of meals together. She remembers thinking specifically that when he prayed, he prayed like no one else she'd ever heard. He was always thanking God for everything. 
He was thankful for the food, but he was just thankful. And it affected her. A transgendered friend of hers cornered her one day and said, This Bible reading is changing you, Rosaria. And she responded by telling her friend what she was thinking. What what if it's true? What if Jesus is a real risen Lord? Then one Sunday morning, she got out of bed. And an hour later, sat in a pew at the Syracuse Reformed Presbyterian Church. She started going to church. Said when she went in, she had a butch haircut. So she had to put to death the fear of man. Because she stuck out. But she said she didn't care. I was there to find God. And one, what she calls ordinary day, she came to Christ. Now, this is a picture of believers being good stewards of the grace of God. They've received grace and they're stewarding this grace in this culture. It's the, it's the kind of life our text is calling us to this morning. So Peter says, therefore, in light of Christ's returning, we should, number one, be self-controlled for the purpose of prayer. Be self-controlled. Verse 7, therefore, because the end of all things is at hand, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Self-control includes this sober-mindedness, and it's what we need to pray appropriately. Prayer is expected if you're a believer. It's non-negotiable, but it's easy to neglect, isn't it? So Peter is preaching us up. And he's exhorting us, exercise self-control for the sake of your prayers. We face a danger. In the midst of this culture, in the midst of the opposition and the criticism, we are in danger. Amidst all the stresses that we're experiencing, we're in danger of falling in love with this world. We're in danger of quenching the work of the Spirit. We're in danger of becoming dull spiritually. We're in danger of the day of the Lord coming like a thief in the night. And we should pray that the Lord would come quickly and we should pray that our strength will endure and that we would escape the trap of spiritual apathy and indifference. You may remember that Peter was in the Garden of Gethsemane with Jesus. Remember, he was going to the cross and he was with his disciples and asking them to pray with him while he, his sweat became like drops of blood because of anguish and they kept falling asleep. Do you remember that? And finally, the last time he woke him up, what did he say? Could, couldn't you... Pray for an hour. Couldn't you tarry for one hour? And then what did he say to him? He said, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Peter understands that. And that's why he's saying, the end is near. The end of all things is near. 
Have self-control for the sake of your prayers. If you, if you flirt with sin thinking you have a lot of time, you're a fool. We should, we should spend time in earnest prayer this week so that we don't indulge the flesh ourselves. So that we don't grow hard-hearted toward the Lord. Thus saith the Lord, pray that you'll have strength so you won't be worldly, so you won't be self-indulgent. Pray. Pray the Lord will provide a way of escape from the cares of this world that weigh you down and pull you away from Him. Pray for that. Self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. It's, it's often misunderstood. If we neglect this, though, it's a, it's a mistake. It's necessary. And it applies not just to our prayer life. It applies to every area of our lives. It's a difference maker. In the, in the very area of your life that you want to grow in this morning, it makes a difference. So think about it. Is there an area this morning that, that you are especially discouraged about? Maybe in an area where you've tried numerous times, attempted to change over the years, but you've never been able to change, and it's discouraging. You don't even want to try again because you just fear failure. It'll just be another failure, more discouragement. If, if you have an area like that, think about self-control. These churches that Peter was writing were made up of newly converted Christians. Remember in verse 4, he says, With respect to this, they are surprised when you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. So he's saying the culture around them, the pagan culture, you used to be just like them. You would go and just indulge these sinful passions with them. But now you don't. You're saying no to ungodliness. And they're surprised. But they continue to need self-control because there's pressures when you live in a pagan culture. And our culture is very much like that culture and there's pressure. And we need to pray. Francis Schaeffer once wrote, we are surrounded by a world that says no to nothing. We have a society that holds back from nothing. Any concept of a real no is avoided as much as possible. Of course, this environment of not saying no fits exactly our natural disposition because since the fall of man, we do not want to deny ourselves. So we, we really must learn self-control. If we, if we want to live in this world during this time, the rest of time, if we want to live for the will of God, we've got to have self-control. Proverbs 25, a man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. That's what a man or a woman without self-control is like an ancient city without walls. 
When Proverbs was written, that, that, that was the city's main defense against their enemies. They were vulnerable to attack. If they did not have walls, the, the citizens of that city were going to suffer. Nothing was more important for their protection, for their security than these walls. They were defenseless against their enemies. They didn't have these walls, and so are we if we lack self-control. We're going to be attacked by temptation and sin. Self-control is like a wall around us. It's the chief defense. If we don't have it, we're vulnerable to every sinful desire. Peter's exhorting us, no longer live for human passions, live for the will of God, but without self-control, we're defenseless. We're going to have temptations from the outside and remaining sin on the inside and no defense. It's vital, it's, it's not optional. What is it? Ed Welch the biblical counselor says this, among evangelical Christians, self-control is suspect. Our sense is that if change feels like self-effort and hard work, then it's probably legalistic and not animated or empowered by the Holy Spirit. Self-control, of course, can feel like hard work, but we would be wise to revisit teaching on self-control. It's kind of the Lord to highlight it this morning in this text. I think the Lord is speaking to us. Man, we need to know that this is not about legalism. This is actually about the gospel. We should desire self-control. We should pray for self-control. Here's what Jerry Bridges, how he defines it. It is a governance or prudent control of one's desires Cravings, impulses, emotions, and passions. It's saying no when we should say no. It is moderation in legitimate desires and activities. And absolute restraint in areas that are clearly sinful. Biblical self-control covers every area of life. and requires an unceasing conflict. With the passions of the flesh that wage war, as Peter said in 1 Peter 2, against our souls. This control of the self is not dependent on our own strength, on our own will. It's not relying, it's not pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps to govern our desires. It's a gift. It's the fruit of the Spirit. It's the empowering work of the Spirit. In the heart of a believer who's been born again. That's what self-control is. Charles Bridges, in his commentary on Proverbs, says, Men may talk of self-control as if the reins were in his own hand, but he who has been born of the Spirit and taught to know the plague of his own heart is made to feel that effective self-control is divine grace. Not his own native power. 
Have not repeated defeats taught us the need of calling in better strength than our own? (laughs) That's what we need. If you're discouraged this morning because of a lack of change, what you need is a better strength than your own. It's a gift. It comes to us because of the gospel. Our our lack of strength has taught us that this self-effort is insufficient. The life we're called to live. But for the believer, by the grace of God, better strength has been provided. We're tempted by the world. We're tempted by the devil. We're, We're tempted by our own remaining sin. They oppose us. And and the fruit of self-control is like a defensive wall protecting us from temptation and sin. So when these enemies arrive, they find a wall fortified and well-placed that protects our soul. Where, Where do you need to build a wall this morning? Where do you have a tendency to indulge your desires? Emotions? Are you easily irritated? Do you have angry outbursts? Does that characterize you? In in the words you speak, are you a gossip? You slander other people? Are you critical? Do you complain? What about your thought life? Do you entertain lustful thoughts? How do you spend your money? All these things. Use of time. Too much time watching TV, playing video games. Social media. What are you thinking about right now? (laughs) That's where the wall needs to be fortified. So I want to encourage you. We have community groups this week. Go to your community group. If you're not part of one, you can ask any of the pastors. We have information on these at the Welcome Center. Go to your community group for fellowship, for counsel, for encouragement, for accountability, for prayer. And talk about, you know, a few areas where you need to fortify the walls. Don't think you can't change because by the grace of God, you can. The Lord will give you the gift of self-control. Peter also says we need to love one another. Secondly, verses 8 and 9, we need to love one another. In light of the fact that the end of all things is at hand, we need to love one another. Verse 8, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without Grumbling. Notice these one another's. There's one in verse 8 and one in verse 9. Keep loving one another. Show hospitality to one another. This is how we are to live together in the midst of all the stress around us. We don't live alone. We live in community. We love and serve one another. It's such a gift. It's a love that allows our fellowship to continue in spite of the fact that we're always sinning against one another. We are, we are people that sin. We're in a community. And in this age that we live in, there is still sin. And we sin against one another. 
And so Peter says, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins and there's going to be a multitude of sins. So you got to love each other earnestly or it's, it's going to destroy the fellowship. Love is going to promote unity and peace in the church. But without this, sin will destroy us. We, we miss the mark repeatedly. Remember when Peter came up in Matthew 18, said to Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me? And you can just see him pointing at John. How often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times because I'm in number six. And Jesus said, I don't say to you seven times, but 70 times seven, Peter, forever. Forever and all, always. Keep loving one another earnestly. No matter how many times, multiple sins, just keep loving them because love covers these sins. Without love and forgiveness, we don't offer the world anything different. If you're a believer, you are a member of God's family, the church. And this, this family, from a biblical perspective, is more central, more lasting than families were born into or adopted into naturally. And, and how this spiritual, how this eternal family, the church, relates to each other is absolutely crucial to our witness to the world. Our relationships, these relationships, they reveal to those outside the church that the gospel is powerful. They make the gospel attractive. If we're thinking like a Christian, we think the, the people around us this morning are followers of Christ. They are our brothers and sisters in our family. This eternal family we've been born into by the Spirit. And that their relationship to Christ should motivate us to be kind to them and to do things like show hospitality to them. It's for His glory. Again, care groups this week, care group leaders and their wives, they will open up their homes. One of my burdens this morning was just to encourage you, to thank you, but I, I think the Lord wants to encourage you. Don't grow weary. Thanks for doing it, but don't grow weary. Hope everybody will participate in these small groups. With this fresh vision of their purpose, this is the reason for these small groups. Community groups are about relationships. They're about fellowship. They're about care. They're about love. They're about hospitality. Thank you, community group leaders. Thank you, those of you who host community groups. Thank you for your hospitality. The end of all things is at hand. And you are loving God's people and showing them hospitality. And the Spirit wants to strengthen you through His Word. Rosaria Butterfield again, she wrote a book on hospitality. 
It is the book your college professor does not want you to read. It's available in the bookstore. Here's what she says. We, in her neighborhood, we the well-known conservative Christians on the block now that God has saved her, run a house that from the outside looks like a Christian commune. And we don't believe that this is excessive. We believe this is what the Bible calls normal. We believe that Christians are called to live as the family of God and to draw strangers and neighbors in. This is the vision that the, these, these verses are, are casting this morning for us to see and taste and want to do. They want to draw strangers and neighbors in with food and a bended knee and prayer beseeching God's grace to pour out on those who do not yet know the Lord and to encourage and uplift and fuel those who do. I'm not going to read the rest of that quote. But during, during the time that Peter was writing 1 Peter, hospitality was so important. There weren't buildings for church. So oftentimes the church gathering had to be in somebody's home. And also when, when missionaries would, would travel and they'd come to a city, to stay in a public inn wasn't encouraging to your Christian faith, as you would imagine. It was filled with pagans and idols and all manner of things. But So you, if you stayed there, you would just increase the opposition and the stress that you would be under. But if you went into a Christian home, it had the exact opposite effect. So hospitality is encouraged throughout the New Testament. And we're be, being encouraged to show hospitality to one another even in the 21st century. I think it's a gift. It's an expression of love. Mike Imlet's a biblical counselor. He says, the practice of love takes many shapes in Scripture. The one another verses present a dizzying array of ways God calls us to move toward each other in love. Loving others in these multifaceted ways means that we need to know and understand people well. That's what community groups are all about. Love doesn't happen in abstraction, but in concrete person-specific ways. Now, these one another's changed my life. I remember, you know, after the Lord saved me, you know, my, my vision for the church, the way I saw the church, it was just a religious gathering once a week. You weren't close with the people. That had been my experience, and I, that's just how I viewed the church. But then in the early charismatic movement that I was a part of, People began to unpack these one another verses. There's two of them in our text. And they started highlighting how the church is not a building, it's not a religious organization, it's people. And they, they would unpack these one another's and it drew me to the church. I saw this vision, I thought it was attractive. I wanted to be a pastor. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Verse 9. Hospitality is a chore. 
It's an expression of love. It's costly, it's burdensome and irritating. And that's why Peter says, show hospitality and by the way, do it without grumbling. Mike was receiving the offering this morning. He said, we want to give cheerfully. We want to do hospitality cheerfully. It's costly. It's burdensome. That's the glory. Do it cheerfully. Authentically. This is what God is calling us to today. To steward the grace of God we've received. Show hospitality without grumbling. Love one another earnestly. Lord, I pray this morning for our church. Father, we want to pause and say thank you for the grace of God that we've received, Lord. Every one of us in here who are believers, those of us who are part of this local church, Lord, we are aware of the grace of God. We have received grace. We have received unmerited favor, Lord, from you. And Lord, we want to be, we, we continue every day, Lord, you forgive us. Every day you empower us. Every day you help us, you answer our prayers. And every day, Lord, we're receiving more and more wave upon wave of grace. And we want to steward. So Lord, I pray that this text and this call and this vision for us this morning, in light of the fact that the end of all things is at hand, that you're returning, Lord, I pray, Father, that you would fill this church with your spirit and empower us, Lord, to bring glory to you through advancing the gospel in our church. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message given by Bill Kittrell during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. To find out more about Cornerstone Church of Knoxville, visit us at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com or call our church office at 865-694-4356. We'd love to have you join us in our mission to treasure, grow in, and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ.